<laughs> Hi, I'm Lindsay Dershoop, and you are listening to the Steady State Podcast. Sit ready. Hey, Rachel. Good morning, Tara. How are you How's doing? It? I'm great. I'm great. How are you? I am, you know, I'm making it through this week. I'm, it's one of those weeks, but I'm really excited because we talked to Lindsay Dershoop, and that was freaking amazing. Yeah, I think she's on your top three list for folks to chat with. I always feel like when her name comes up, you get real bright and shiny. And Do I? You know, and now that I've spent, I saw her for like 10 minutes at the Charles last year and then getting to spend and hang out for over an hour with her. Boy, she is a she is a light. She is a light. Yeah. When we talk about Lindsay Dershoop, a lot of people know that she was an Olympic athlete and she took home a gold in Beijing. What a lot of people may not know about Lindsay is just how humble she is, how brilliant she is, how philosophical she is. Yeah, so passionate about rowing. And you've actually gotten to experience her coaching, and we talk about that in this episode. Yeah, I went to a Steering You Right Endeavor Racing Alliance Masters camp um, about a year and a half ago now. And she was one of the coaches along with Cass Cunningham and Leslie Wright. And, you know, I've been rowing coaching and coxing since 2001. And I, I mean, I'm the sort of person that knows there's always more to learn and I always want to learn more. And so this was one of those opportunities. And Lindsay, together with Leslie and Cass, just talk about rowing in bigger, different ways. And I love the way Lindsay talked about the body and taking care of the body and kinesiology and physiology. And I have to admit, now that we sat down and we talked with her and I really kind of like put all the pieces together. So she grew up on a farm in Virginia. She went to UVA. She's back at UVA coaching. And the University of Virginia is not that far from me in DC. So it was like a light bulb went off and I might just reach out to her and say, hey, can I make a trip? I'd love to see you at UVA, see what the program is like and what you're doing there. Yeah, yeah. And she sounds like the job that she's taken on is, I think, especially kind of profound in a way that she's coming back to the program that that really launched her rowing career. She didn't row until she was a junior in college. And how 9-11, which we just honored just a few weeks ago, how 9-11 played into that. So you'll hear in this episode a story about how the restrictions on campus and how the activities on campus led to literally her running into the rowing coach. So just listen in for that story. I thought she was very philosophical, like you said, like she could be a lot of different rowing memes. Like she's got a lot of t-shirts. So you're gonna really, you're gonna wanna take notes, I think on this one, because Lindsay really drops a lot of knowledge and she drops a lot of inspiration. So. Grab a pen for this one. Grab your tea or coffee for this one or a glass of wine. And we get to see her again at the head of the Charles. She's racing. We're racing. It just feels like a great time to celebrate. Great yeah. coaches like Lindsay. Here at Steady State Podcast, we are really interested in backstories. Real life experiences on and off the water that make people the rowers, coaches, and coxswains they are today. From indoor rowing to flatwater masters to coastal and ocean adventurers, We celebrate you who represent the global humanity of our sport. Together, we disrupt and expand the narrative about rowing culture. We're your hosts, Rachel Friedman and Tara Morgan. If you're a first time listener, welcome. 
If you're coming back for another episode, thanks for being here. On the last episode, we talked coxing and cerebral palsy with Mitch King of River City Rowing Club in Sacramento, California. His philosophy, physical limitations only exist if you're willing to find them. Every day, he does countless things that doctors said were impossible when he was a kid. Mitch doesn't call himself a disability advocate, doesn't want to be an inspiration, and would rather folks didn't try to tiptoe around his disability. We delve into the discipline of being a student athlete, collaborative coxing, finding tenths of a second on the erg, and shattering expectations. If you missed it, listen anytime at studystatenetwork.com slash podcast or anywhere you get podcasts. Study State Podcast is sponsored in part by Barb, Concept2, and EB5 Investors. Hey, how you doing? <laughs> Hi, Lindsay Dareshoop. Writing down some notes about the first leaves that I'm seeing fall out of the trees. Oh, wow. Yeah. Carrie, you went to Ithaca, right? So you got the whole, you got the fall experience. Well, I also grew up in the Smoky Mountains in Tennessee in Oak Ridge and got the full experience and then went to Ithaca College and got the full experience of Northeast. And then interestingly, as a sidebar, we just uh, uh, acknowledged 9-11. And my 9-11 story was I was visiting Ithaca, supposed to go to New York City on 9-11. My friends were flying in from Seattle to meet me in New York. We were going to go to shows and all this stuff. Well, that didn't happen. And I ended up taking my rental car and a tent and heading to the Adirondacks. And I ended up all the way in Vermont. And it was the strangest world. It was literally the like the four days after 9-11. It was the yeah. strangest world. Yeah. And I ended up looking at covered bridges in Vermont and yeah. then realized that I was completely alone with no one that I knew in a time of massive national crisis. So I parked myself in a motel and watched CNN for like 48 hours. It was weird. <laughs> as a world, weird several it was a weird situation, but... I, was, I actually, I remember where I was for 9-11 and even kind of tracked back the fact that had 9-11 not happened, then the whole scenario of how I ended up bumping into Kevin to start rowing in the first place wouldn't have been set up in such a way. And no. I mean, the universe probably would have conspired in yet another way for me to actually decide to start rowing. But that very specific one was a situation where because of 9-11, a football game had been moved to the end of the season so that it overlapped with the swim meet. And then they normally close the place where the where the swimming like the swimming pool down to use the um, parking lot for football games, but they kept the pool open and closed the gym and used the parking lot. So I had gone to watch some friends swim, and they literally had these barricades up so that people don't go into the rest of the gym space because it was closed for the football game. I'd worked at the gym, so I was like, whatever, I'm gonna use the bathroom, right? And so then hopped over those fences, went into the dark, empty gym, and Kevin had done the same thing. We were the only two yeah. people that were around. That's that whole setup, but it like yeah. that particular setup would yeah. not have happened. So you crazy. met Kevin there? Yeah. I mean, I had met him in the past, but the day that I decided to start rowing and when he said, hey, it's never too late to row, was literally December 1st, 2001. I had hopped over because this football game had been moved from September yeah. the, the Thursday. So it had been moved from September 13th to December 1st. They, they were supposed to play at Penn State. And then it literally set up this whole thing where it was like, over the fence as we go, which that wouldn't yeah. have happened. It right. Would, wow. you know, maybe, maybe he would have been at this, you know, swimming not less, but sure. yeah. yeah. Wow. Well, we're glad you did. I we're glad you, you, we're glad you randomly started rowing as a junior <laughs> at UVA because that's why we want to talk to you today. We are big fans. I got to meet you at uh, the head of the Charles last year with your book and your book table and book signing. And Rachel, you got to actually experience the coaching 
wisdoms and uh, wit and wisdoms of coaching from <laughs> Lindsay at a Endeavor Racing Alliance camp in Arizona. I, and I know I, she, you came out of that experience very inspired. But yeah, mine, mine blown. Mind blown. First of all, I, I stepped into that environment really not knowing what I was getting into. I knew that they were master's women. They got together. There was a camp. I was like, all right, let's go. See yeah, yeah. I really think I did not understand that these are women who are not just committed to rowing, but committed to the team and to that particular group of women. Yeah. And yeah, it was like fly and die for me those three days. I learned, I learned a lot, lot. Yes, uh, Lindsay, I have talked to Tara about you and I've talked to other people about you and just the way that you talk about rowing and self-care and um, your enthusiasm for all of it. It just really gave me a shot of something that I needed at that time oh, last yeah. April. So thank you. Something that I've realized since working with Leslie Wright and Cass Cunningham with the Steer You Right and Endeavor Racing Alliance stuff is that really I was in the launch after maybe the third or fourth camp that we had done together. And I'm just thinking to myself, like, especially because masters in particular have a self-awareness. Some of them have rode for 50 years. Mm -hmm. um, some of them have rode for five months. Yeah, that. But you realize that it's really about, you know, uh, longevity. It's about uh, quality of life, you know, because they're able to give you that feedback of like, oh, when you said this, I felt this and this is why it helped, which helps me be better as a coach. But it also then makes me go, okay, so a master's athlete has a little more probably a little less cushioning for the bones. And so you feel it even more, right? Your body's been through more, so you feel things more acutely. So then they go, okay, so the 12-year-old that's rowing, probably fit that they just can't feel it because they're still like Gumby. So yeah. let's like impart those lessons all the way back there. And then maybe they can carry it through their whole career and just be better and better the whole time, you know? So uh, yeah. it, it's super fun for me. And I always say inspiration is a two-way street, you know? So it's not like here, I, we're just putting it all out there, but you learn from everyone that you get to work with. And, and it really is rejuvenating to be in those environments where you get that kind of feedback and it just helps you go, how can I get a little better at this? Well, yeah. anybody who gets coached by a coach like that is lucky. And I consider myself a pretty collaborative coach and I love seeing their face, understanding their body language, helping them with their self-awareness, helping them with their journey as athletes. You know, a lot of what a lot of people, especially women, come to rowing later in life and just never have had an athlete or a team experience or even had a coach, yeah. you know, ever in their life. And I, I sit really solidly in the Learn to Row Adult Masters community, which is yeah. like my passion. Huh. And just to see light bulbs go off and emotions get expressed and the fact that they aren't they don't have their scholarship on the line there is uh, no just timeline right it's, it's right right I have, a, I have a master's athlete that only rose in the rowing machine that i work with and he's almost 70 years old and he came to he's like i want to extend my clothes line right it's not years okay. not four years it's not by whatever race it's i want to extend the quality of this thing that i'm living you know which I yeah thought, Lately, I've been doing um, training with this wonderful trainer here on the island doing heavy lifting and, you know, sort of the postmenopausal approach, you know, heavy lifting and, and high intensity. And I have been saying this mantra to myself the last few weeks when I'm feeling like, oh, do I really want to go? Like, oh, do I really want to or do I really want to exert or do I really want to put a lot into this? And I always I've been saying to myself lately, if not now, when? Mm -hmm. Like, mm -hmm. when? Like mm -hmm. nail it down. If it's not today, that's okay. But when yeah. you have to, yeah. you have to commit to the next time. So Lindsay, well, we know that this is awkward, but tell us a little yeah. bit about yourself. I'm Lindsay Shu. Um, I learned to row in 2000. When was it? 2002, January 2002, spring semester, my junior year at the University of Virginia. So I was 20 years old when I started rowing. And after I rowed at UVA for actually three spring seasons. I did a year of graduate school. I moved up to Princeton, New Jersey and rode with the U.S. national team for a number of years after that. 
let's see, I've coached everybody from middle school and now officially as of the most recent camp that I just got back from all the way up to 86 years old. So I've worked with basically every possible group in there that you can squeeze except officially division three collegiate. So even at the mm-hmm. college level, division one and division two, but I have worked with pretty elite athletes. So uh, who knows? Maybe some D3s were in there as well. I currently do quite a few things. I'm a freelance coach. I, gosh, this year I coached about 13 weeks of camps all over the country and also world. I also work part-time with U.S. rowing, do, doing various projects. And I am also was recently brought in to focus on strength conditioning and mobility work for the University of Virginia rowing team. So I um, am part-time over there, but fully invested in the lives of those amazing young people, which I love, right? It's all about the personal connection. It's all about growth beyond just rowing. I actually leave tomorrow to go coach rowing for a CrossFit camp, like a pretty world-renowned CrossFit camp. I do that twice a year. And one of my favorite things about that population is that they love rowing, right? Yes, rowing. They do. And thank you. And thank you on behalf of all of us who've seen bad rowing form from various people, not just CrossFit people, but thank you for being an ambassador. Yeah. For the proper rowing stroke. I am technically. I guess I'm allowed to say this, working on an indoor rowing curriculum for U.S. rowing so that we can even help. So that not just so that I'm not the only one out there being the ambassador, but to give everyone like resources to self-teach, but also, you know, think about strength coaches and people at artistry, people at CrossFit, all the different people that are interested in rowing. Like, here's a resource. If you don't know a lot about rowing, here's how we can really do it on the rowing machine. I think something really interesting about this camp that I do with it, with all these CrossFit athletes is that a lot of them are coaches and they come to it as coaches and athletes. So they come at it from the point where they're like, I want to learn how to do this for myself, but I, I want to know how I can take this back to the people that I coach at my space. And so then they're actually willing to come and be coached yeah. by another coach so that they could be a better coach. And I think that's a huge barrier in rowing is that how many coaches are like, it's not that often that you would have like a full camp that's just hey, this camp is for coaches to come to and be in the boat, right? It's There's like a, there's a different type of, you know, ego to a certain extent that goes in there. Right. And then and then you have to have that delicate conversation. And, and that is that layer of trust that kind of goes into it. But I, I think that's a really unique thing that they, that they go, I'm here to learn as an athlete, but actually I'm a coach. So they're there actually practicing the things themselves so that they can feel what they're feeling when someone says something, you know, because a lot of times in the way that I coach is I'll say something that's, probably seems different. Like it might seem that it's guiding you somewhere that you don't want to go. And in reality, it's guiding you where you do want to go. But unless you're in there listening to it and actually moving yourself in such a way that you're trying to figure that out in the way that that feels, you know, you might not fully appreciate different language around certain concepts. Sure. Well, we just interviewed Mitch King, uh, Coxon, and he talked about as a coxswain, you know, doing the work that the rowers do so that he understands the suffer fest. You know, he understands what's going on. He understands the motivation of the coach. And it also helps him learn how to motivate his rowers because a good coxswain is what I call a level three coxswain, which is a, they do drills, they count, they steer, and they motivate. So, you know, there's definitely an opportunity there when a coach can jump in. Mm -hmm. So we want to find out how your rowing week is going. So on a scale of one to 10, how has your rowing week been going? How is my rowing? What does that mean? What, what is scale? My, I mean, rowing is a huge piece of my life, I guess. <laughs> has it been, been a good rowing? week for rowing? Yes. Yeah, it's been a good, it's been a good year for rowing. Very productive and very like a lot of learning. And um, I'll be racing ahead of the Charles. Yes. Are you there? 
see you that, there. See you there. Like Leslie Wright for that one. And oh, oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I just, I, are you stroking an eight? I am not stroking an eight, um, but I will be at an eight. I raced in the FCU Classic last year and at the Charles last year. And actually, Mary Whipple will be boxing the eight. That's amazing. Can we send a recorder into that? <laughs> I tell you what, the last time I raced the head of the Charles with Mary was a handful of years ago in a four. And I had never raced. It was the first time I think I raced a four at the Charles. Raced the champ four. Um, and then I realized that a four is much easier to turn than an eight. Because when it was time to turn, it was just like, here's what we're doing. Like, boop, do this thing. Cool. Here you go. One stroke, you're wrong. Uh, yeah. You're like, oh, okay. Especially with well, a good coxswain. With yes. a good coxswain, yeah. It just made me really, like, over the years of having her and having had other coxes that were also quite, quite good. It's just like, man, she's okay. really free. What is one thing that she does that you think is really amazing? She's super chill, first of all. <laughs> you know, several things. She doesn't act like she knows any more than the rowers do. Mm-hmm. She doesn't need to know any more than us, you know, and that's a huge piece of that is taking pressure off of herself because she has her own pressures. If she holds something, then she doesn't have teammates to help her hold that thing. Like it, it puts a lot of pressure for her to be the only one to know or remember something. She also, you know, gets to know you well enough that she knows right when you need her and then goes, okay, this is going to happen in two seconds. And whether it's on purpose or not, uh, like, I don't know if she even realizes she does this, but it just seems to miraculously work this way that every time, you know, we race that she could just like jump right in there right before you have that moment of like, well, this is hard. <laughs> like a redirect to the way, yeah. like even, even when we were racing at the Olympics, for instance, you know, she jumped right in there and you're like crossing through the thousand, which is a kind of a typical area. But like right at that moment when you're about to be like, oh my, this is quite hard. <laughs> Where you're like, and we are halfway there. And I feel like I've given you all of my self-worth right now. Like all of my chi is out here for you. You know, she's literally the line that she used was something like, you know, this is all I need right now. They don't know that we have another gear. And I'm like, oh, this is all the gears. Mm. This is my extra gears. And yet, okay, we have another gear. Awesome. Here we go. Yeah. Yeah, You were in that boat with Anna. Yeah. Anna Mickelson. Uh, Yeah. Anna Mickelson and Anna Goodale. But yeah. I would invite her to come to my Learn to Row graduation day Mm -hmm. for Masters. Mm -hmm. And they would, she would show up with her gold medals and her jacket. And yeah. she, they would, their minds were blown. I just wouldn't tell them. I'd be like, a special person's coming. <laughs> yes. They would just be like, she was a special person, you know? She's like, so great. There was a point, I wrote about this in my book, where she, where one of our last practices in Beijing before we raced, you know, we stopped the boat and I can't remember if it's like to get a drink of water or something like that. And she said, you know, savor this moment because you don't know when you're going to be, when or if you're going to be in another boat like this ever again. And my very naive mind was like, oh, but I'm going to keep racing. What do you mean? Like, I'll be here again. That boat was particularly unique, right? And the amount of time that it took to hone that level of skill where it was just like that set, that fast, that dialed in, that mm-hmm. supportive, that trusting, you know, that fluid, that flowing. It, it was hard, but it was all like pointedly hard where there wasn't, it wasn't painful from a physical structure standpoint. It was effectively hard, which is a wholly unique experience. You know, so. Wow. <laughs> yeah. I, love that. I won't digress further into that. So. <laughs> So we want to talk with you about all that stuff, but there is something that we do every episode, and I think we should dive in. You ready, Chara? All right. So yeah. to our listeners get to know our guests, we put you through a lightning round of questions we call the hot seat. Hopefully my brain is rested enough. Okay. Okay. Hit me. Porter starboard. Starboard. Sweep or skull? Predominantly sweet, but I love sculling. 
Bow seat, stroke seat, or engine room? Yeah, bow pair. Head race or sprint race? They are both completely different. <laughs> Depends on which one. Like this sprinting is like, how much can I possibly do here? Which is like more physical and head racing is like a really good mental game. Unisuit or tank and trow? A unisuit and long spandex over it. We kind of just touched on this earlier, but favorite Cox command you ever received? Oh, gosh, that was just it, right? We're, we're pacing the world right now. This is all I need. You know, this, this is all I need. They don't, they don't know that we have another gear. Yeah. Although, wait, let me go back to them. 250 meters to go. Zero words, nothing but sound, and all that you can barely hear. Trust, believe, repeatedly. She's just Last whispering thing. it? No. I mean, you got to yell it because at that point you have like so many people watching. You just trust. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, favorite place to row? Switzerland, Lucerne. Everybody says Lucerne. We, we got to get there, Tara. We got to go. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody yeah. mentions the cows and the bells. Yes. And the... yes. Best piece of rowing advice you ever received? Sleep. Yeah. I guess that's not rowing specific, but... You gotta sleep. There are no hacks. You must sleep. Start there and then ask for the rest. Coffee before or after a row? I did not start drinking coffee until I turned 30 and retired from international racing. There you go. Some people tap it right in before and after practice. (laughs) Yeah, some people are like during. I can tell you that if I had been a coffee drinker, there were two of us that slept better than everyone else and we had the fewest injuries and we did not. Without coffee. Yep, we did. Yeah. We had the fewest injuries and we were not coffee drinkers and we slept more. And so I can, I have to think that like not drinking coffee allowed me to sleep better. It allowed me to recover better. I took a nap instead of relying on it, but it also allowed my thoughts and my mind to settle a little bit better. I could trigger my parasympathetic, which allowed me to recover even more. But, and it also didn't disrupt my nutrient absorption of what I was eating. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Kill yeah. my gut microbiome if I consume too much of it, right? So, yeah, yeah, a lot of things that I'm like, oh, this is what you learn in grad school. Oh, this is how, yeah, and that's what you learn. <laughs> well, yeah, you piece it together and you learn it in hindsight. You're like, yes. oh, that makes sense. Yeah. Steady State Podcast is sponsored in part by Breakwater Realty Group. Daydreaming of new lakes, rivers, and coastlines to row and play on? Consider a home in Maine. The Breakwater Realty Group, brokered by eXp Realty, can help you find your home away from home or relocate to a new primary home with ease. Connect with the team by visiting breakwaterrealtygroup.com and scheduling an obligation-free buying consultation. Maine, it's the way life should be. Listen to more episodes about everything from indoor rowing to rowing across oceans. Search the podcast archive at studystatenetwork.com slash podcast. And while you're there, could you leave us a review? When you do, it helps our podcast get noticed and reach more ears. In two, we're back with Lindsay Dare Shoop. That's one, two. Hey, so you talked about walking on to UVA uh, in your junior year, but we want to take a little step back. How did sports play a role in your life growing up in it or did it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I played all the sports. No, I mean, not all of them, obviously. It's a, but I, uh, I played almost a dozen different sports growing up. I um, grew up on a farm just south of Charlottesville. My parents still live in the same place that they moved into in 
November of 1981. Yeah, but so they're still out there. So I grew up in the country and grew up with a bunch of boys. So before organized sports, it was like bumping around in the field and climbing trees and jumping over stuff and falling out of things and beating each other up kind of a lot. <laughs> yeah, like, so physically fighting with a bunch of boys as a child, trying to outrun them, you know, so you're, you're developing all these kind of weird skills just, you know, organically as a kid growing up on a farm. Um, but I started riding horses when I was four. I started swimming when I was very, very young because I almost drowned a couple of times, you know, and mm. my mom would put us in all the camps, like tennis camps. And we even did like fitness camp at a local gym. And I played field hockey and soccer and baseball, basketball. I started playing in third grade, played that for about 10 years. Volleyball was my favorite sport. Even got to some beach volleyball. Yeah, um, volleyball. Yeah, yeah. It's great. Gosh, it's such, such a fantastic sport. Um, such a great sport. Yeah. So soccer, did I say soccer? Yeah. So I played a lot of different sports growing up and they really kept me on track, quite honestly. Like if I didn't uh, do my homework, then I couldn't go to practice. If I didn't do my homework, I couldn't go to my game. You know, plus you have this cluster of people and I went to a small school, so it wasn't like you could, you didn't really, I mean, you were friends with basically everyone. Because when I say small, I mean 32, 34 people that I graduated with. So yeah. Even, you know, so you didn't get so lost in this large mass of people. So it wasn't the anchor that sports provide was like a little tribe within the tribe, you know, but just the, the positivity, the physicality of it, you know. Did you dream about going to the Olympics someday? I mean, sort of, but not realistically, right? And if I had, when I was very young, it was like, oh, equestrian events or beach volleyball. When beach volleyball became an Olympic sport, I thought that was the coolest thing. And then in the Barcelona Olympics, which was the last time that both summer and winter games were in the same year, I remember seeing growing on TV and growing up in the country, you got four channels and NBC came in the best. And so that was kind of like, oh, what's on? Let me choop. There it is. And what's this weird sport? I don't get it. You know, and and I'd almost set aside that memory for a long time. But sure, thinking, oh, that's, that's interesting. Whatever's going on there, I don't really know. But after watching the winter and summer games in 92, I became obsessed with wanting to go and watch the Olympics because it was Atlanta after that. Mm-hmm. I had like a, put, stuck a bumper sticker on my bedroom door and I was like, this would be so cool. Let's go to the Olympics. But not like in a realistic way of I, I would go there because real athletes do things like that. Real athletes play a sport in college, you know, and I didn't consider myself a real athlete. Because I went to a small school, so I was like a big fish in a little pond. So then I figured if you put me in a big pond, I would just be average at best. I think I hear that a lot of, a lot from uh, small town athletes. Of course, we're right here with the University of Washington, which is one of the hardest, most challenging programs and competitive programs in the country. And yeah. we see a lot of these small town kids with great org scores kind of get eaten up by those programs and get injured. Uh, But then you see some that just, you know, there's, they got so much grit and they just get through it. And then the walk-ons, you know, so you came on as a walk-on having, were you an athlete at UVA? I got into UVA academically, chose to go there because it was the best school that my parents could afford, right? I I was an in-state thing. It was the, the, literally the best school in the state, the best public university in the state and just a phenomenal institution anyway. So went and for two and a half years, basically like meandered and did all the things that college students do, stayed up all night. I was doing all the things. My grades started to tank and my social circles started to get smaller. And, um, and then I very serendipitously bumped into the head coach at UVA one day in the fall of my junior year. I did play some like co-rec league volleyball with some friends, but it was like, I oh, go play one day a week. We might practice on a Sunday, sort of. And then we'd like go eat oysters and drink beer afterward. 
that's quite a turnaround to then jump in. Uh, you said in January mm-hmm. of your junior year into yeah. a very pretty competitive program. Yeah. I mean, the, the level of unfit that I was, I can sum it up in the first time I tried to run a 5K, an elderly speedwalker passed me going up a hill. Right. Like that's how unfit I was. I had gained like 30 pounds since high school. I hated running. I was so slow. I'd never really lifted weights in my life. So I was, you know, a little over six feet tall, but I was not an endurance athlete. I mean, I played in goal in my high school sports that were field sports, field hockey and soccer, just so I didn't have to run. Right. It's like, cool. I'm big. I can do my thing in here and kind of be that rough and tumble kid, but not have to run around a lot. So I that think was- to the taller folks, running running is just not for tall people. Yeah. It's just, you know, I saw this very funny U.S. rowing showed showed their combine, their national men's team combine. You can watch it on YouTube. It's from years ago, but it is the funniest thing because they make them run yeah. and they and they're the coaches are like doubled over laughing because yeah. he's like, these are these guys are huge. They're like yeah. six, eight, six, yeah. nine. Yeah. They're, they're laughing and saying they're like Clydesdales. They're just like, yeah. And you know, bump, you know bump, the, bump. the tendency too is that people make this misconception of like, you're tall, have a longer stride. Well, we shouldn't, right? We typically, because tall people tend to overstride and now you're landing on your heel. And then you're also because it's technically, even though it's microseconds at this point, a longer fall time, you're going to have more of an eccentric loading and it's going to make you sorer and less efficient. Yeah. Like if you're going to take a longer stride, you have to be super stable and super powerful we need to actually take shorter strides and try to get above 160 steps a minute closer to 180 and then your stride naturally lengthens out from there with such a long stride you should actually be thinking about dividing the work more and increasing your turnover rate interesting i had a conversation like this a lot less informed but a conversation <laughs> like this with um a friend of mine who uh was coach at the time he was 6'5, 250 mm-hmm. And he had been a collegiate rower and he sent the team out for a run. And the entire team was like, well, coach, you got to come with us. Mm. And he was complaining because he's like, I'm too big for this. Yeah. I used to hate running. I love running now. There is something about running that is just very natural to us. We intuitively know how to run as human beings. Yeah. And it's totally free. Like you don't yeah. go anywhere for it. It's just there for you. And there's something very liberating and freeing and primal about it. You know, I always say yeah. going to the weight room is where... I feel taller and confident and just more put together. And when I go out for a run, especially if I'm in the woods or something like that, that's when I just feel fluid and wild and free. So you talked to coach yeah. Kevin Sauer at UVA and you said, hey, I think you should come row for us. Yeah. Do you remember what you thought you were getting into at that time? I thought a, a couple of things. The, the time was right. Like I knew that I didn't like where I was. I was always a good student. Almost all straight A's. Like I had a B plus was the worst grade I ever gotten. That was in history. And then my grades started to go to like C minuses. So this was like a shocking reality for me. So I knew that the path that I was on was not the right one. And this was an opportunity to change course. And I remember thinking, gosh, this man has asked me a few times, like, I must be special. So <laughs> he took the time to meet me in the tank, right? To show me kind of the ropes and show me around. the. F- he himself came and met with me to show me around. Not the other coaches. He did it. And um, he said, you know, just trying to exercise a little bit over the break. You know, you've never rode before, so you can't come to Florida. He actually said, so you probably shouldn't cuddle our winter training trip in Florida and then just show up on your first day. And I almost ran away. I was very nervous about yeah. it. What was I getting myself into? Because as I was walking in, it just got louder and louder and I could hear all of these people in there. And it didn't occur to me that there would be more people. Other than yeah, there were a whole team. The whole yeah, team. like a whole team of people. And coming from not rowing, you're, uh, you're basketball predominantly, even volleyball in a small school, you have between six and 12 people that you're used to being around. 
So I walked in, it was like 50 or 60 and everybody was my size or bigger and fit and tan because they had been to Florida and they're all gabbing because they knew each other. And I thought, mother, what is this is? Whoa. And I took one little peek through the window and hightailed it because it was like, oh, this is not what I thought it was going to be at all. And two of the girls that were running over late caught me and said, hey, practice this way. Walked in. And this is where when I think back to this moment too, A, the serendipity of them bringing me back. But also the serendipity that someone on the team had the wherewithal to notice that I was nervous. And I stood there for a little bit and got that like where you kind of can feel your face turning red, but also everything feels cold and empty and just totally Aww. frigid ice. You know, you're like you're so nervous. And she just came over and said, hi. Yeah. Hi, I'm Mary. What's your name? <laughs> Welcome to the team. And then as soon as she did that, several other people followed suit, realizing, oh, my bad, there's someone over there that we don't know. And that made me feel so much better. Because those made- gals had, had been rowing together their whole college careers, potentially. And a lot, yeah. a lot of them, actually, at the, at the time, there were a lot of people that had walked on to Virginia. So the walk-on population across the board it collegiately has waned, which is, hmm. in my opinion, a travesty. <laughs> Yeah. Right? Like five of the women that I raced with, myself included, in Beijing, learned how to row in college. Five of the guys that raced in Athens that won also learned how to row in college. Right? Yeah, because you were, you you rode with Anna. She walked on as a cross-country yeah. athlete. Uh, in Megan Calmo. Megan Calmo. Yeah. Again, yep. So uh, Anna Goodale, Anna Michelson, Susan Fritzia, me, Aaron Cafaro. You know, like yeah. these are people that all learned how to row in college. That was just from, you know, Beijing alone. So <laughs> I think that's interesting to hear about walk-ons plummeting over the years. You know, we've talked to a lot of people who are collegiate athletes and they talk about being walk-ons. But now that I really think about those demographics, those are folks in their, probably honestly, in their 40s or at old. Le- yeah, I was going to say at least late 30s at this point. A big piece of that was because um, some of the, a lot of the conferences started to ship away at it. When more schools had full-ride scholarships, people started recruiting more. So the novice boat turned into a third varsity eight or fourth varsity eight, or if it, and so now you have people that are just learning in a row of racing against people that have rode for potentially like eight years at that point in time, which then doesn't allow you to develop in the same way. And I think a couple of side effects of not having novice rowing are that, you know, the culture. So having a group of people that you can kind of bumble around and figure this stuff out and go through that like silliness. We even had that phase when I joined the national team. So the effectiveness of that cannot be underestimated. And I think that, you know, if you teams that we have this culture conversation all the time and I'm like, well, my Malcolm Gladwell's spaghetti brain goes, could it just be because we don't have novice and freshman rowing anymore? You're kind of throwing them to the wolves and they don't realize that they're surrounded by other people that are, you know, just as (laughs) self-conscious, just as new, you know, let it, let them be and encourage them because it's, it's, we know that especially with women in particular, the Positive Coaching Alliance does a bunch of great research with this stuff, you know, that that with women in particular, it's important to recognize in the dose response of having a base level of skill before we compete and then making sure that the competition is appropriate so that you get those little growths in confidence over time so that then when it's like, here we go, you know, big dogs, let's go, let's go make this happen. And like, you're a little bit more apt to really be up for it. And novice rowing kind of appeals to racers, not necessarily rowers, but you can find racers. And when that's like a true innate piece of who you are, that really can take you far in the sport when maybe the competition is a little higher 
I had a great experience of going to the University of Washington Go Dogs Boathouse, and I got to do a ride along with their novice coach. And these were girls who they don't even get the gear until like they're well into the process. They don't even get like a shirt, yeah, you know. Yeah. But this coach, I couldn't imagine a better novice coach. He was full of joy. He was. fun he teased them he you know wasn't like well you better get it right and kind of be in the (laughs) shit like pretty soon you know yeah (laughs) and they really i think for such a big dog program to have that range but now you see kids they're recruiting kids internationally so that's one of the things we wanted to talk to you about was this whole back to school collegiate um you're you coming into a new coaching role and and the back to school thing and and we're seeing these these international recruiting happening and also clubs, junior clubs are really taking it up a notch. Like kids are doing weight training and strength yeah. training at, yeah. you know, 13, 14 years old yeah. now, whereas they were used to just be like raggedy, you know, trow. And then yeah. now, I think yeah. what is interesting is that like, you know, I had this not fit. It took me a year to break seven minutes and I was not strong like it. There is obviously you have like this capacity relative to your size. Your lungs are pasted to your chest wall, so you're if you're a bigger person, you're naturally going to have more capacity from an ox, you know, from an aerobic standpoint. Um, but there's that efficiency rating in there, and so you can get pretty far without being that strong. It's good to utilize, especially at young age, strength conditioning and, and proper weight training if you know how to do it, because there are fewer skills that are being organically learned out there, you know, just because the nature of how society has changed with digitization and technology and all of these things, taking away monkey bars off of the gym, right? Our shoulders are not doing the same thing that they were, you know, but to be able to use it to help them be structurally stable, like create stability and give them challenges on land. Like instead of thinking, oh, I need to squat a million, can you, instead of squatting a million pounds, can you squat yourself a million times? Optimizing the movement pattern, doing it right rather than allowing for the compensations and things like that. There's a lot more people investing at a higher level in rowing, right? And by investing, I mean putting their children in juniors programs that do weightlifting and training and and take it and go to a really competitive level, but also investing in your child who's coming from Australia or Germany or the Netherlands to send them overseas to school. It just feels like there's been this uptick in the commitment level and the investment level at the collegiate level. and. You know, when we talk about collegiate coaching or collegiate rowing, it feels like it's changed a bit in the last, you know, decade or so. How would you characterize how it's changed? Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely think it's changed quite a bit. You know, I, I there are a lot of factors in there. This came up in kind of conversation last night among colleagues. You know, I feel fortunate in that when I did kind of transition through college national team and then moving into coaching after that, social media wasn't a big deal. Like Twitter only kind of came on the scene. And I'm like, I don't want to be a part of that. Like, that's just distraction. And now we freely allow ourselves to have these distractions. And you're so aware of everything. You're constantly, everybody, no matter how good you are, you know, everybody's having that, that unintentional, accidentally on purpose peer comparison. Because even if you're like, oh, I'm only on here so that I can look at dogs and rainbows, you also still catch sight of other things that are happening. Well, and and, and and NIL for yeah, athletes, yeah, you know, yeah. NIL for, for college athletes. If you don't know, folks don't know what that means. is name, image, likeness. And people, yeah, kids yeah. can now make money yes, um, being yeah. uh, on Instagram and yeah. uh, promoting we, brands. We one of the influencers earlier on, you know, there's a, there are a myriad of possibilities here that are impacting 
overthinking things. And I feel like it's a Pandora's box that we're driving the car into the ditch. You know, there was, uh, you know, book Born to Run. And part of what came up, and I swear it was in Born to Run, was, and I need to look back through this, but the idea that running speed stagnated as soon as money entered the picture. Like we had more people running world record speeds and then they started getting sponsorships and whatnot and it becomes a job. And so even if it's just maybe the concept that it's a job and now it's something that you have to do rather than something that you want to do, even if that's subconscious or Mm -hmm. subliminal, that could be a piece of it, you know? And, And there are plenty of situations out there. I remember our assistant coach when I was with the national team, you know, she made a comment one day, it has to be about more than the money. Right. So thinking about some of the other countries that we would race against that stood to earn 10 to 20 times the amount of money that we could ever possibly fathom, <laughs> like literally 10 to 20 times the amount of money that we would get for racing the same race, had, you know, if we won that race, that it had for them to be more than money, because really you can make a lot more money doing other things for the vast majority of people out there, you know, but now looking at the collegiate level scholarships are real dollars. So the initial influx was scholarship dollars and more and more programs out there that have more and more scholarships. So Division One and Division Two provide scholarships. And there are about 150 Division One, Two, II, and Three programs out there. About 90 of them are Division One, So you can do the math. Division Two is the smallest. So there are at least 90 to 100 programs out there that have real money on the table from a pure scholarship standpoint not including all the other things that you stand to get as a student athlete, the resources, the academic help, all of the things out there, shoot money for snacks and food and all that, all that jazz. So then to add the NIL to it on top of that, that's like even more potential for dollars that are out there. But there's like also a simultaneous uptick in mental health awareness and the pressures. And now you're allowing a young person that doesn't necessarily have the skill set to understand that they are on the hook, (laughs) right? And so now they can't opt out of something because they have sold themselves. So they now have even greater pressure and they may or may not realize it, but now they have to do certain things. So here we are saying, focus on this, pay attention to what you're doing, be in the moment, be where your feet are was a great way that an athlete said it to me recently, but but if you now have an NIL, now you're, you are, you know, you have to give something. You are giving away a piece of your soul that you can't right. take back until your contract is up. And so really helping people understand the gravity of that. Yeah. I'm trying to imagine being an 18 year old freshman who's like, I like rowing. Right. And then yeah. you go to the yeah. program because you think you're going to row and you're going to row well with a good program. But hey, by the way, here are all these other added pressures and things that you've got to think about being a Even at my, where I am, I get all kinds of notes from people that are like, oh, we want you to be an ambassador for this thing thing. And, and I'm like, I just don't believe in any of that stuff as far as like being given, even if it's like being, being given whatever it is, because then, you know, you are, you've given yourself a piece of that and you have to like the trust of that relationship, like, because people are then going to look at that brand and you are a part of that. It's a two-way street again, to use that right. phrase, you know, and And I think that is something where it's like the only way that I feel that I am genuinely giving you just me with no influence, and you know that, is to stand outside of that altogether. You have to be financially capable of doing it or be willing to be. Like, William taught me how to do a lot on very little. (laughs) Yes. Right. Well, there are ways that we can positively counteract these things. And one of them is being on a team. We interviewed Mitch King in our last episode who got involved in rowing as a graduate student, never saw himself as an athlete. He's a coxswain. Um, And he really uh, experienced a really incredible impact 
from being on a team. So now you're back with Coach Kevin Sauer. You're back in the UVA mix. You know, you must feel like you're coming home and you're probably bringing all of your, I mean, I can tell just by talking to you, there's a lot of positive energy there, a lot of love for rowing, a lot of love for, you know, kinesiology and, and performance and all of this. And what do you think are some intangibles outside of high performance and erg scores and things, some intangibles that really make a team culture, whether it's collegiate, masters, juniors, whatever it might be, but what are some intangibles you really believe make for a positively impactful team culture? Yeah, everything about my entire experience at Virginia as an athlete, let alone now coming back to it, is that like the way that I describe the culture is past the paper, right? That the team performs beyond whatever logic might say, because there are these underlying elements of like being a racer, loving the sport, loving your teammates. That's where you start. We write and read millions of business and sport books telling us that it starts with the people, right? Get the right people on the bus. Jim Collins, good, great. Get the right people on the bus. And then then you drive the bus where it, it you know, point the bus where it's going to go. And, and that really does come down to who you are as a person, right? Are you bringing the positive energy? Are you bringing the support? Are you looking and going, I'm racing, but my teammate tripped and fell. I need to go grab that person rather than being like, cool, I'm going to beat him now. Mm-hmm. Right? Like mm-hmm. if you can come into the situation and not just be an adder, but when you really, really dial into the people around you and support them, you're a multiplier. Uh, my friend Jen Goldfax, she raced for the UK and the US as a lightweight. And the way that she put it is um, there are two types of people in this world, radiators and drains, right? And so can you be a radiator? And I think that's the stuff that really carries you the farthest. I love that. That's yeah. the title of our episode there. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> 100% that, you know, and Kevin has the capacity because of his personal beliefs and all the different things behind it. And I think a lot of the stuff that has maybe happened in his life, you know, that he has the capacity to believe in things that cannot be seen or touched. And when you are surrounded by people that truly live that way, it helps you believe a little bit more in yourself. And we recently did, we very, we sort of secretly, we secretly put together an endowment in his name for the team and collected hundreds of people donated to this thing to get it started. And then we had a Zoom with Kevin as you know part of the surprise. And over and over and over again, what people said without being prompted for this was the the common characteristics were the care you taught me to believe in myself the family the connection you know and that was really cool to see that it was people over many decades of time felt the same way yeah so that consistency i think is really important over the years yeah so i sat down last year and i read your very interesting book better great than never thank you so much for sharing that experience well, your rowing experience and your rowing life in that way in your book and after i read it literally like a week or two later i was at an event called erg sprints which is held in alexandria virginia been around for about 35 years and i'm, I'm involved with that organization in a couple of different ways but one thing that i do at erg sprints over the last few years is I actually lead a session called Rowing and Coxing in College 101. Kind of ironic because I didn't do either of those things. Uh, but it's um, but it's interesting. And uh, I had just read your book and something that caught my attention that I shared with everyone else was you wrote that um, college rowing will be hard. There will be yeah. ups and downs. But if you stay patient, positive and determined, as you mindfully put in the time and work, there is no telling who you can become one day at a time. And everyone was like, oh, that's amazing. Like, I just was so glad to be able to oh, share. Thought with them. <laughs> because you've got, yeah. you've got a lot of, in this session, you've got a lot of kids who are like 16, 17, thinking about going off to school, 
There are parents who are nervous about it. There are parents who are like, I don't know if my kid's going to be successful. I don't know if my kid's going to be overwhelmed. I don't know what college sports are really going to bring my my student athlete. Yeah. Uh, I think um, I should tattoo that on my forehead so that I don't yeah. forget it. You know, like that's one of, the things, <laughs> one of the things that I really like about the fact that I wrote, like, I mean, I wrote a lot over years, like, and then this is, you know, what I finally like dove in. It was like, okay, let's make this thing reality is when I get, even go back and read it, I kind of like an out of body experience. I'm like, dang, I wrote this thing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> there's so many good reminders in there of sport is a metaphor. You know, I was joking with speaking of Mary Whipple, we were talking the other day and we were just like, the Olympics is easy compared to life. <laughs> yeah. It's called, you know, just like, yeah. And then, and then you, you know, you're finally catching up to the things that your parents always said. You're like, you live long enough to know some stuff and have stuff start happening, you know, and, yes. and yes. going through these experiences as a young person, like that's the dose response. You're young, you start going through these things that are very hard at the time. And then you can kind of reflect back on them many years later and be like, wow, I went through some really hard stuff. Then this is harder than that. But what did I learn from that? My teammates really helped, right? Like, and those relationships that you can really de develop through that kind of hard thing are relationships that you then continue to rely on throughout the rest of your life and learn from and support one another through, you know? And mm -hmm. so that you can remind each other of like, just take it one day at a time. Like, just, just take it one day at a time. That's, yeah. that's all that we ask, you know? And it, for everyone in general, and it, myself included, when you go, when I'm preparing for the Charles <laughs> is meet yourself where you are and then gradually tease that out, right? Like no matter how old you are, no matter how long you've been rowing, just where am I? And the next time I do it, can I maybe go a little harder one stroke sooner? Not a hundred strokes, not 200 meters, not a thousand meters, literally one stroke, maybe two strokes if you're ready for that. And then do you do that enough days over enough time? And that, allows you to take it all in as you're ready for it, you know? And yeah. Right before we started this interview, um, Lindsay, I don't know if you know, we do uh, a coffee chat on Instagram live every Friday and we chit chat about everything rowing. And Tara was talking about a women's four that she's going to be rowing next weekend. And stroke seat rows with Chinook and is like, let's go. And then her bow seat is like, I haven't rowed in six months or whatever it is. Uh -huh. And so finding that middle ground. So yeah. I like what you said about kind of finding where you are today. Yes. Yeah. What can you give today and what can you contribute? Exactly. Right. And, exactly. and then to your point about teams and, and about team culture, my favorite rowing related, what I always put into my rowing quoting world is rising tide lifts all boats. Mm -hmm. And if you are lifting up your teammates, if you're a radiator, not a drainer, as you said, then more things are possible. You yeah. know, if you're feeling beaten down and isolated and uh, like you're you're not part of the team and you're not going to be feel very successful that day. And there's always there always should be someone who has their head on a swivel, who's checking around and, and making sure that that people are not only not getting knocked in the head by actual things <laughs> like a boat and riggers, but making sure that, you know, what motivates your people and you know what. Yeah. Build your yeah. people up. Yeah. I mean, what what are teams? But, you know, this the the tribes of this day and age. You know, and and mm -hmm. and that couldn't be more to the point where you know, no matter where you are, no matter what's going on, like it it does become a weird challenge because people's social circles have thinned but broadened at the same time, right? They've gotten shallower and broader. So the number of people that are kind of in your network, instead of literally be able to check in with all of your people, like who are in your closest circles and then their closest circles and all of that kind of stuff. But really, just keeping a head on a swivel and staying aware of how everyone's really doing, you know, like not just oh hey, how's it going? You know, I'm looking you in the eye. And I want to know how you're doing. Right. I had a friend just the other day, actually, someone that I met through Endeavor, 
she just randomly messaged me out of nowhere. And I hadn't talked to her in a little while. And she was just like, you know, all that it said was, how are you, Lindsay? And I could tell because she put my name there in that just note. It wasn't, it wasn't a phone call. It was just a message. That she was like sensing something. And I hadn't talked to her in a little while. And she said, I just woke up and I had a sense there was something up. And I just wanted to check in. And I was like, wow. So then Leslie Wright followed, it, followed that up with, we're all connected when we pay attention. Mm-hmm. And the number of times that that has proven true over the years, it's just like serendipitously eerily true. So really paying attention is this beautiful thing that you practice through sport, you know, you practice through rowing, but like then you can practice it in your you know day-to-day life too. It's just, again, lips all shifts. You know, the thing about it is that I'm watching the girls come to the weight room and I, you can just see, because I'm a highly empathetic person, you can you can see the innocence like in their entire beings, you know, and like to help them help bolster that and really help build them up as much as possible now to help them stay strong because the more physically robust you are, the more psychologically you are capable of handling this crap that that will inevitably happen at some point in your life. And to get to be a part of that is just, that's my favorite thing. And that's actually why like I would just assume not be out on the water with them. Like this is special time where you get to walk around and make eye contact with every mm-hmm. single person several times a week and just have that be that different space for them and build them up in a different ways. It's super yeah. special. You know, one reason that I really enjoyed meeting you and getting the opportunity to talk with you a few times, is just how humble you can be and that you talk about what's tough. It's not just look at these medals I won, but things can be tough. Um, and we all, I think, need to sometimes we need some help with that and understanding that. But the fact of the matter is you made it to the Olympics and you were standing there holding an amazing gold medal. Yeah. What does that feel like? So Anita de France is the woman that gave us our medals, which she's like, she's like Anita de France. I mean, she's just she's like legend, imperial, yeah, legendary, iconic, pioneering human being right and so that's the person that is standing there calling us superheroes and i'm like are you are you sure you know do you know who you are you know which is just such a cool thing too about talking about humility you know that woman goodness gracious and it was like a fairy godmother moment like it literally here she's holding this medal we had won the world championships before that and the medal is basically like a little quarter on a ribbon that you could win at a gumball machine compared to what the Olympic medal is like, and she's holding it. And, and none of us is really ready for this. And I'm thinking like, it's not the medal. Like it's, it's, this is the experience. And then she put it over my head. And as she did said, you know, your life is forever changed. And then when the physical weight of the thing kind of hit me, it literally felt like a fairy godmother moment of like, hmm. and so then you combine the who with the what and the experience that we have literally crossed the finish line and rode straight to the medal stock. So within a matter of minutes where, so you're still like, oh, what's happening? So the reality of, of it has yet to strike and to really settle in in terms of what that really means. But she was not wrong. And my life had has forever changed. And there are times when I think of other situations where I really appreciate those moments and those words pattern in my mind of like being just so grateful. Oh, I'm going to tear up here. <laughs> so grateful for like certain situations where you're like, I'm here because yeah, the work that I yeah. did. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Thank you so much, Lindsay. It's just such, it's such a joy to talk to you. And I love feeling your passion and it comes through so clearly that you love this sport. And oh, yeah. our audience 
are mostly not Olympians and mostly not national team rowers. Our audience are the people who show up in ratty trow at, you know, <laughs> that's in the morning at a boathouse and they make, you know, they eat donuts and they... Sounds like my you know, first year workout, you know. Ratty trow, nothing matched, and we ate donuts. <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay. well, there you go. I'm glad we're in good company then. Yes. But I know it's important to our audience to just tell the stories of people and the backstories of why people row and why this sport means so much. So... No matter what, it's it's such a good inspiration for people. And you said inspiration goes both ways. It's a dialogue. So, you know, thank you for I, being you know, part of I would of say that. of all the things you do, you talk about the medals and things like that, like time and time and time and time and time again. My favorite part about this sport is the people that come into your life as a result of, of rowing still to this day. We can't thank you enough for being here on the podcast with us. We can't wait to see you in Boston and go team. You guys are wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. This has been so much fun. We could talk. For ages, I'm sure. To see photos of Lindsay and get links to the people, clubs, and events mentioned in this episode, check out the show notes on our website. Thanks to a special group of our patrons, Jill M., Bobby K., Dave H., Arthur W., Lenore A., Chelsea V., Stephanie M., Casey D., Alan M., whose support helps make this podcast possible. Join our team for as little as $5 a month at studystatenetwork.com slash Patreon. Steady State Podcast is sponsored in part by Rosource, providing creative design services for clubs, organizations, and regattas. Get the design help you need at rosource.com. Steady State is more than a podcast. We get together on Instagram Live for Coffee Chat every Friday morning at 8 a.m. West, 11 East. We bring that post-practice coffee with teammates vibe online to talk with the community about all things rowing. So grab your favorite mug and add your voice to the conversation. Get more info when you subscribe to our weekly e-newsletter. This episode was written, produced, hosted, and edited by me, Tara Morgan. And me, Rachel Friedman. Tara provides additional audio engineering and is our sponsor coordinator. Rachel manages our website, social media, and e-newsletter. Our theme music is by Jonas Hipper. Between us, we have nearly 40 years of rowing, coaching, and coxing experience. Rachel is a longtime rower, coach, and coxswain in Washington, D.C. She's the owner of Rosource and is a 20... She's the owner of Rosource and is a tiny bit squeamish about sculling. Tara is based on Vashon Island, Washington. She founded Seize the Oar Foundation in 2013, is fanatic about coaching Learn to Row, and believes the pair is the best boat. Find us on Instagram and Facebook at Steady State Network, Seize the Oar, and Row Source. Coming up on the next episode, head of the Charles Announcing Committee co-chair, U.S. Rowing Para High Performance Director, and Massachusetts native Ellen Minzner, from walk-on at Villanova to five-time national team member, to her transition into coaching and program development, Ellen saw the long game, changing the status quo of her club's organizations, and communities. She also gives us a peek behind the curtains at the world's premier annual rowing competition, the Head of the Charles, from her vantage point in the announcer's booth on top of Cambridge Boat Club. Catch new episodes of Steady State Podcast every other weekend, anywhere you get podcasts. In two, way enough, that's one, two.